You're listening to Sleepy City. I'm your host, Liz MacArthur. Starting now, you're not to blink. If you blink, we go back to the start. Don't you want devoted followers who leave their families for you, give their money to you, give their bodies to you, give up their lives for you, consider you God, and will kill for you? Don't you want to become a cult leader? Are you trying to recruit me? No. I'm just trying to share something meaningful with you. Nothing in this world has value unless it relates to the leader or the ultimate purpose. Today we delve into the story of a man who's been known by many names. A chameleon who slipped carefully out of one identity and into another throughout his lifetime, leaving behind loved ones, devoted followers, and exasperated enemies. Edward Arthur Wilson, the devil of de Courcy Island, Emile de Valdez, the Brother Twelve. Brother Twelve headed up a cult in the late 1920s in Cedar, just south of Nanaimo. His esoteric theosophy had garnered him attention and publication in Europe, the United States, and Canada. Followers flocked to join his Aquarian Foundation in his promised city of refuge that would shelter them from the coming 1928 apocalypse. In 1926, it started as an idyllic paradise. By 1932, he disappeared, leaving nothing behind but rumors. What happened in between was confusing for outsiders. Was he genuine or simply a con man? Why did those people subject themselves to his increasingly brutal and maniac authority? What gave him his incredible control over the minds of his followers? We can ask these questions, and once we start tugging at the threads of his story, more and more will arise. We can slowly circle around answers, but how close can we get with time working against us, creating more distance between us and the strange brother? My name is Stephen Portman. My family has a cabin on Ruxton Island where I've been hanging out since I was 16 in the summers and that sort of thing. So we've come to get to know a lot of the people who've lived on the island over a long period of time. And it, you know, if you have a place in that sort of on one of those islands, you hear the story of Brother Twelve. It gets told time and time again. Ruxton Island is a tiny little island nestled in the De Courcy Group, which includes Valdez, Pilates, and De Courcy. There's no electricity on the island, even now, just a scattering of cabins in the woods. You need your own boat to access it. The islands are just off the coast of Cedar, the site of Brother Twelve's original colony, where the Aquarian Foundation was established. Stan Wardle is a retired judge in Nanaimo. He was a kid during the years of the Aquarian Foundation and became a lawyer after the colony disintegrated. He corroborated parts of the Brother Twelve story on the phone with me. I knew his boat. His boat used to anchor in front of our place uh, when he was visiting the uh, location on Valdez. The bay in front of us is called Dogfish Bay, and uh, it's well protected from any storms, so he used to anchor in there. My uncle lived on Valdez and looked after the sheep that Mrs. Wake had there. The property belonged to Mrs. Wake at the time, and uh, my uncle Harold ran the sheep for her, and he used to go through Brother 12's property without any problems, and uh, he knew most of the people. In fact, he used to uh, take them. It was forbidden for, by Brother Twelve to uh, correspond with the outside world, but my uncle would pick up the mail that these people wanted to send out and take it to town and mail it, 
and uh, the, the return address was Wardle Brothers Bicycle Store, uh, 60 Victoria Crescent, Nanaimo. And then he'd pick it up on his next trip to, uh, he came in every week with sheep, and later he uh, used to take uh, Mrs. Conley and Miss, uh, Miss White to town on Fridays or with whatever it is the day he carried sheep into town. So I got to know Mrs. Conley and Mrs. Uh, White quite easily, knew them on a first-name basis. <laughs> Given the, some of the free love principles that he espoused, there's two minds. One, one theory is that he was able to attract, you know, high-income, intelligent people because they could come to this place and be free of all of their inhibitions and, and be able to have sex freely uh, in a really open way and not feel bad about it because it was under the guise of spirituality and enlightenment as opposed to uh, adultery. And once they had come to the island to party and experience that kind of lifestyle, well, then it would become incumbent upon them to contribute financially to the colony or else face being exposed for being humans in desire of sexual freedom. So there's that. There's another theory that's like, which is the theory that I was like originally told and like believed was that he was a spiritual leader, that he was legit. He gave people um, something to believe in that was complex and nuanced enough that he made believers out of these people, that they came and they experienced a sense of, um, I don't know, nirvana or whatever you find in a cult where you go there and you just, you feel this otherness that's worth you contributing to and and being a part of and that they were actual, actually diligent followers of his, you know, cult. But the one that I was originally told was that he was just a charismatic and spiritually authentic leader that people like legitimately believed in. People like, like legitimately believed in. Brother 12 was born Edward Arthur Wilson in 1881 in Birmingham, England. According to John Oliphant, who wrote an extensive biography of Brother 12, he married and moved to New Zealand, where he was mostly unsuccessful in finding a trade and building a life. Letters from the time show him as somewhat self-pitying and really plays on the sympathy of his parents, who continually send him money to keep him afloat. He seems resentful of the world and his inability to find true success. But eventually he abandoned his family and reappeared on the west coast of Canada, where he spent time working in Victoria, Nanaimo, and boating extensively along the coast. Edward Arthur Wilson was a skilled mariner and held a keen interest in the esoteric. I visited the Nanaimo archives where, among legal documents, notes, and news clippings, I found a letter dated April 23, 1915, signed by Edward Arthur Wilson. He'd drawn up a horoscope for the wife of a friend. The letter says he sent it from Hornby Island. Something that stands out in the letter is the detailed breakdown of what he charges for a horoscope. It reads, horoscope of complete life, $2.50, progress directions for one year, $1.50, progress directions for three years, $2.50, and progress directions for five years, $3. Below this, in his charming, meticulous handwriting, he writes, of course, in your case, there ain't no charge, adding he's certain she'll find real benefit from his work. He signs it with a flourish under his name. 
I wonder if she sent him money in the end for the horoscope, despite that mild protestation. This is an early example of his ability to use his charm and knowledge of the esoteric to make money. Ten years later, he'll be getting ready to do a similar thing on a much larger scale. After a spiritual experience in southern France, Edward Arthur Wilson became acquainted with his master on another plane, who he then channeled, becoming the Brother Twelve. The story goes, Brother Twelve was a foreigner who came to the Pacific Northwest, and upon seeing the beauty and just the natural environment, came to find the place to be a spiritual place, a very important place, a place where he could gather followers to uh, pursue a separate colony in preparation for end times. The interesting fact about this colony is that he didn't go about recruiting the ne'er-do-wells. It was, you know, he was a man who went after the best and the brightest or captains of industry or <laughs> like people of political significance or doctors or lawyers or people who had money. This is a fascinating point, especially if you're interested in cults in general. Brother Twelve's followers included the educated and wealthy, and several people of some renown, like known astrologers Colson Turnbull and Alfred Henry Barley, and former American Secret Service agent and detective Robert England. The people in the Aquarian Foundation were often from the United States. Some were from England. Well, I, I remember talking to one of them. It might have been Mr. Sepulvador. I, I said to this fellow, why do you get involved with this? He said, well, Brother 12 convinced us the end of the world was coming, and... Uh, he was the savior. De Corsi Island was going to be the only place that was saved. <laughs> and these are all intelligent people and rich people. This guy was an electrical engineer, making 10,000 a year. I remember that. And that fabric lasted me when I uh, heard 10,000 a year. It was quite a salary in those days. Brother 12's most loyal follower was arguably wealthy North Carolina socialite Mary Connolly, who had essentially bankrolled the Aquarian Foundation's colony. She gave Brother Twelve money to buy the de Courcy group of islands and testified on his behalf during the first round of trials against him. The deal was, if you wanted to find eternal salvation on de Courcy Island in the colony of Brother Twelve, that you would have to take all of your worldly possessions, all of your money, and have it turned into uh, pressed golden eagles. It sounds ridiculous now when I'm telling the story, but like I totally believed it when it was told to me. And uh, yeah, so everyone had to take all their money, press it into golden eagles, put it in a treasure chest, come to Decorsey Island, give it to Brother 12, and join the cult. So that's how you, you got in. But the payoff was that, you know, he was going to take you on a spiritual quest and, and prepare you for, you know, end times. Stephen laughs about the gold, but the existence of it is a pervasive part of the story and seems to be true. There are many accounts of people bringing gold coins, American gold eagles, which Brother Twelve put in mason jars and then poured in melted wax. Stan Wardle told me more. There was a fellow by the name of uh, Bill Coates, did a lot of work for him building the place and also helped himself to a lot of stuff uh, when the thing fell apart. Bill helped himself to whatever he wanted. And uh, at one point, he told me, this is right from Bill himself, that he moved off a bunch of 
butter boxes. I don't know if you're familiar with butter boxes. They were well-built boxes in those days with dovetail joints on the corners. And I don't know how many pounds of butter they put in those boxes, but they were all waxed inside. Bill said he packed off, I think it was 40 boxes, with a quart of gold in each one of them. So whether he, he was accurate or not, but uh, he, he was actually a friend of Brother Twelve's. Did all, a lot of the work for him on, on the Corsi particularly. Like all uh, the examples of, of cults in the Pacific Northwest, it came apart because of a woman. And uh, once again, I'm telling the story as told to me. And so he, Brother 12, had many lovers uh, among the, the people who came to live in the cult. But one above all of them came to become a bit of a figurehead. And she was known as Madam Z. You can't make this up. Like, Madam... Yeah, so Madam Z uh, was the light of his life. And together, they, you know, ruled supreme over the colony. But over time, um, Brother Twelve became suspicious of Madam Z. And many of the followers, uh, I guess, who tended to sort of follow some of Madam Z's dictates as opposed to some of the things that Brother Twelve was telling people to do... And so uh, Brother Twelve evicted Madame Z uh, to the shores of Ruxton Island, and she was made to work really hard, slave labor style, and experienced abuse at the hands of followers who she had abused. Okay, so I think the Ruxton version of the story deviates from the truth a little here. Madame Z was indeed one of Brother Twelve's lovers. She arrived at the colony as Mabel Scottow from Florida, a little late in the game. She was the third partner that Brother Twelve had during the Aquarian Foundation years. He arrived at Cedar with Alma, who was understood to be his wife, and drifted away from her as time went on. Then he met Mabel Baumgartner on a train and brought her back to the colony to produce an heir. When people in the Aquarian Foundation, which now had groups across the continent, complained about the fact that he seemed to have dropped his wife only to start up an ambiguous sexual relationship with a new woman, he admonished them, saying they were only having sex to bring about the prophecy. They had to do it. This had nothing to do with personal enjoyment. Despite the fact that Mabel said she recognized Brother Twelve from dreams she'd had of her soulmate, she was unable to produce a child. In fact, she left the colony devastated after two miscarriages and completely rejected by Brother Twelve. And Brother Twelve didn't evict Madame Z. It was loyal Mary Connolly who was sent into exile to fend for herself in a dirt floor hut after Madame Z arrived and began to rule with an iron fist. They had cabins on Valdez, and the people from Gabriel and anywhere around when it fell apart came over and got windows and various things out of the houses and the last one that was standing was one that was built out of little logs, about two-inch logs. And I think that's the one where Miss, they took Mrs. Conley over there in the middle of a winter storm and sent her up to the cabin by herself. There were others who left the colony completely adrift after their time there. Brother Twelve took a toll on his followers. He faced criminal charges at one point in court after his treasurer, Robert England, discovered problems with the accounts. Soon after, the newspapers took a strong interest in the Aquarian Foundation. England disappeared without a trace, and Brother Twelve made an appearance in the courthouse that resulted in mass fainting and hysteria. He was not found guilty of misappropriating funds. 
Much later, Mary Connolly would join a small group of followers in a civil action against him when the foundation fell apart. Essentially, like, the whole colony was falling into this, like, very dark space whereby internally they were in trouble, externally there were the forces of the law coming down on them, and things were kind of unraveling. And so at this point, many of the colonists had already left, they'd gone back to their lives, um, or they'd, you know, are suing Brother 12 to get back the money that they turned into golden eagles, and it's all going very badly at this point. One night, as the colony was falling into pieces, it became clear that uh, Brother 12 needed an exit strategy. So at this point, he, perhaps with some very close followers or solo, blew up his boat. In blowing up the boat, he was intending to sort of fake out the authorities that were searching him down. I think what he was actually doing is he was just basically laying waste to the colony. And he essentially abandoned the camp at that point because the police were coming. They were coming to take him and they were coming to arrest him. Brother 12 at that point disappeared. And he's just gone from the scene at this point. When the police arrived on DeCourcy Island um, to try and salvage the personal property of all the followers, the Golden Eagle stamps. They went to his compound and entered the compound and found beneath some floorboards in a deep hole that they thought would be like where all of the Golden Eagles were and all the money was. They found a letter that said, for thieves and traitors, nothing. Once again, the myth is that he hid the Golden Eagles around the islands. There's some buried on Valdez, there's some buried on Mudge, could be some on Ruxton, DeCourcy Island, Pallades. Like, he just spread Golden Eagles, like glitter, across <laughs> the islands, and then took off. And nobody knows whether he passed away or not. Um, you know, there's rumors that he was sighted in... San Francisco or Switzerland, I think. But essentially, he was never seen on the islands again. Brother 12 did destroy his sailboat and set off on another boat with Madame Z. They had recently changed their names to Emile and Zura de Valdez. As a meal, he traveled to Switzerland with Zura. Treasure hunters still look for gold on the islands. See, oh, even Frank Nahar Mayer says, oh, there was gold on Valdez. He ended up part in some sort of a company boning uh, De Corsi. And of course, to sell Watson, De Corsi said the Brother 12's gold was still there, but Brother 12 was too smart for that. He, especially after I knew that Bill Coates had taken off 40 of these butter boxes with gold in them, a quart jar of gold in each one. But I wasn't surprised about anything that happened with Brother 12. He kept to himself pretty well. He didn't bother anybody. He didn't bother anybody that didn't have money. So <laughs> this is all during the Depression, so most of us didn't have very much money in those days. He was our number one con artist, to tell you the truth.
Charles Lillard co-wrote a book about Brother 12 with Ron McIsaac and Don Clark in 1989. It was the first real attempt to combat many of the myths surrounding the cult leader. In an archive of Lillard's cassette interviews, I found an interview with Cecil Clark, a BC provincial police officer who worked in Nanaimo during the years of the Aquarian Foundation. He visited the colony soon after Brother 12 scuppered his boat and fled for Switzerland with Madame Z. Well, anyway, I was going to tell you. Uh, there was this, uh, we, we could see in the newspapers of a curious sect that had started up. It, it was on the up and up. It was called the Aquarian Foundation, and it was established at Cedar. <laughs> Another one of these nutty groups that sort of subsist, you know, and, and have a leader. Usually end up in a free-for-all fight, and they depart. And then a yachtsman came in, uh, uh, you know, summer yachtsman, and he said, funny outfit up there at the Corsi Island, uh, I was up there a few weeks ago, and a guy with a rifle warned me off. And he thought, that's rather curious. Pointing a weapon, you see, under the criminal code, can catch you. So we decided to go up, and they sent a boat up. Anyway, we went up on a police boat, and PML 6, and the skipper was Don Tweedo, corporal. Sergeant Owens was with us, and a constable called Marshall, Robert Marshall. I think that was the squad. And it's a tricky place to get into. There's a peculiarity about that bay, you know. Anyway, we landed on the island, and uh, uh, I'll draw you a sketch of what we saw. That is to say, the plan of the buildings and where they stood and what they were. As they They're all gone now. And there was a house there that um, I presume Brother Twelve had used, and it, I could tell by, I was alone, and I was looking around, you can always study the interior and tell how a man lived. There's lots of books on marine, on navigation, and uh, there was a litter on the floor. Books had been pulled out of racks and thrown on the floor. That book, The Chalice, mm -hmm. there were several copies lying on the floor. I picked one up and rippled through it and thought it was junk and threw it down. I wish I'd kept it now. And he had been making or designing model boats beautifully done. And they'd been smashed, apparently, with an axe or a hammer, because they were lying on the floor. These, uh, these very well-done things, you know, smashed. After that, I walked up the hill. There was a trail there. And I met a chap who was, uh, it wasn't Barley. I think it was Painter. Uh, and I exchanged salutations with him. Sorry, good morning. And of course, you could see who I was in a uniform. Mm -hmm. So I said, we are here to find out who the people were walking around with firearms. Well, he said, I was one of them. And I said, what's your name? I looked up and we stood on this path. And I said, uh, how did it happen that you were carrying firearms? thinking of the hunting laws in the season. Oh, he said we were given them by Brother Twelve. Oh, I said, uh, and where did he get them? Oh, he said from Eaton's. Eaton's is a department store in Winnipeg, and he had a catalog. So he ordered them. I think they were Winchesters, sort of 1884 model. And I, I, and I said, well, what was the idea of the firearms? Well, he said I was on sentry go here. Uh, and I thought, well, you're a bloody fool, you are. Uh, and he said, of course, we built a fort. And he turned around, and there was a, a sort of a ambuscade, a, a little, uh, well, it was an aggregation, dry stone, 
formation of, you know how the rocks here are shale, uh, flat, sandstone, Stand, all taken from the beach, about a ton and a half of them, and they built up a little place with loopholes in it, you see. Well, I said, uh, tell me, uh, 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 what nationality are you? And he said, I'm an American citizen. I said, well, you realize what might have happened to you, an alien with firearms? out of season, putting on a little bit of the heat on him. And he said, oh, yes, I realize that now. But uh, in, in saying that, I realized he was also under the pressure of Brother Twelve, whoever the hell this Brother Twelve was. Uh, we, we, we spoke quite naturally and quietly. He, he ventured that they were about to do some extensive building. And I said, in the nature of what? And he said, we were going to build, build a big house for Brother Twelve. And it was going to be a dressed stone with a slate roof, mm. and it was going to be called Grey Rocks or something. Mm. And I, I said, well, that's going to cost a considerable amount of money, because, you know, I'm thinking of building on an island. Everything's got to be brought there. You know, it's, it's, it's very expensive. Oh, he said, uh, we, have, we have the money to do it. I said, to your knowledge, how much money do you think you have? He said, I think about 400000 Then we walked up through the Salal over the ridge, there were women working, there was a field, and they were all bending and stooping, and there was a long greenhouse. Oh, it must have been 200 yards or more of greenhouse, and they had fruit trees. They're all gone now. They had fruit trees. They had. Fruit. I remember they had nut trees, uh, and apple trees, pear trees, and nut tree, and they had them sort of intermingled. And, and it was the plums that were putting, they were still putting on shelves in this greenhouse to dry out prunes, you see. So then I met Mary Conley. In the meantime, Owens was doing something else or talking to somebody else. I met Mary Conley, a very nice person, and uh, I think it was then that she pointed to a big building, which was a storehouse. She showed me this storehouse full of food, and oh, there was tons and tons of bottled and canned fruit and so on for the end of the world was coming and they would be the only people surviving and and i thought you know when you eye a person like that this uh, uh, woman of obviously uh, uh, standing in any community uh, to, to voice to you such ridicule and yet you've got to keep a state face you're not there to laugh at oh, them of course not. and so Anyway, the schoolhouse was there, and so uh, she took Marshall and I, Bob Marshall by that time had come up on the scene, Marshall and I went over to the schoolhouse, and I thought, well, it's rather funny to have a schoolhouse, never heard of any children here. Mm -hmm. So I said, and we looked through the classroom, and there were all the little desks, beautifully done, all bought, you know, and uh, blackboards, books, no kids. And downstairs, there was a ring in the floor, so I said to Marshall, I wonder where that leads to, and it was a square block, so Marshall's a husky chap, and I was pretty husky too, so we got an iron bar from somewhere, and we slipped it through this ring, and we had a hell of a time lifting it. It was tight. Mm -hmm. It was about, oh, three foot square. I have seen the lid. Yeah. yeah. And we tugged, and we tugged, and we squeezed, and it was a weightlifter's effort, and finally we got this damn thing up, and we discovered a square hole uh, lined with sort of tar. And empty too, wasn't it? Yeah, empty. 
for, for thieves and traitors. Nothing. And uh, that didn't teach us anything. It was a hidey hole of someone's. And Mrs. Mrs. Conley couldn't uh, illustrate, couldn't amplify any knowledge on that. And then, uh, <coughs> now that was that. They'd had a civil ruction. There was nothing for the police to do. There's nobody hurt or killed or wounded. And uh, so we left, uh, left the Brotherhood to themselves to pick up their fragments. Indeed, Brother 12 had fled to Switzerland as Emile de Valdez. Months later, his followers discovered he had died there. A death certificate signed by his doctor was produced. This may have been an attempt to slip into another identity. There were rumors he was seen again later in San Francisco. Not that he was just seen, but that a former member of the Aquarian Foundation met him there and gave him money and assisted with some paperwork. Perhaps there is yet another chapter of the devious guru's life that has yet to be discovered. Why is Brother 12 so compelling still? Why are people drawn to the story of a man who built a cult of affluent, intelligent people? The members of the Aquarium Foundation were not vulnerable, marginalized people who were tricked into following Brother 12. They had money and good jobs. But they liked what Brother 12 was selling, theosophy and the promise of secret knowledge, life beyond this life, meaning and truth. He's still an enticing figure, and people have different reasons for feeling connected to him even now. John Oliphant wrote what is considered to be the definitive biography of Brother 12. He, too, feels a strong connection. So I believe in reincarnation. I think it's real. I think if anybody examines it, the literature, it's, it's, uh, there's overwhelming evidence that we reincarnate. Plus, I've had a number of past life regressions myself. So I accept the reality of reincarnation from what I've experienced. I don't believe my past lives were merely fantasies or figments of my imagination. They're just very, very real. I, I went to another psychic once, and um, she said, well, biographers have a past life connection with their subjects, because why would they spend so much time researching the life of a single individual from the past? They obviously knew that person in the past, so you knew Brother 12 in a past life. So in one of my regressions, I targeted Brother 12. I... Uh, was working with a fantastic uh, transpersonal psychologist and therapist named Richard Clark. And um, so we, we did the uh, induction, it's called, and I, I uh, ascended 20 stairs. And at the top of the 20th stair, I was in a hallway, and I was looking down this hallway, and there were doors on each side of the hallway, and I walked down the hallway. And he said, you stop at a door that, you know, it feels right for you to stop in front of, and you can go through that door into a past life that you have with Brother 12 or shared with Brother 12. So I walked down the hallway, down the hallway, and then I stopped at a door, and I saw an Egyptian symbol on the door. So I pushed open the door, and I walked through it, and I was just shocked. I was in an Egyptian marketplace. It was like crowded with people and noise, bustle, you know, everything. And I was looking at myself, and, and I tell you, I couldn't believe how beautiful I was. I was a man. I was like the most handsome guy on earth. I tell you, 
so beautiful, you know. And as I explored that life more and more, I discovered that I was indeed uh, part of a uh, religious group, a spiritual group, a cult in Egypt. The leader of that cult was the person I recognized as Brother Twelve. And, and what was so interesting, dramatic, and traumatic in that life was that I actually murdered Brother Twelve, or the Egyptian version of Brother Twelve in that lifetime. He, he, he either knew it, he welcomed it, he, he, he ordered it. I'm not sure. Okay? But the most, and, and I would have to say this is almost like the supreme moment of, of my lifetime not even this lifetime, but all lifetimes, huh. is that I took this knife in my hand, I gripped it, and I stabbed him in the chest over and over and over again, over and over and over again. I mean, and I read accounts of uh, killers, you know, stabbing their victims like hundreds of times. And you read that in the newspaper. Somebody goes berserk and they kill their lover and they stab them over and over and over again. And you go, wow, you know, and it's, it's absolutely shocking and horrific. And yet... There I was doing that in that lifetime. And it was, it was like the supreme moment of, it was like ecstasy. Uh, maybe that's, I don't think it's too strong a word. It was like some ultimate experience, you know. And then, and then I went and explored other parts of my life. And then uh, eventually I died simply by walking out into the desert, walking and walking and walking and walking and walking. And you fall over and then you die. I mean, it's simple, right? Your body gets eaten by jackals or whatever. So anyway, I, I brought that back, and then someone said to me, you know, hey, well, you killed him in that life. You resurrected him in this one. Maybe it's true. After I talked to John Oliphant about his experience, his past life experience with Brother 12, I thought maybe I would try as well. So first I googled psychics in Victoria, and I didn't want to spend $200 or $400 trying to contact the dead. I'm doing this on a budget. I asked around with some friends, and someone recommended a medium to me. Her name is Lanny, and she came with a really good personal recommendation. I didn't have direct contact with her at first. I had the name of someone I could text to arrange a meeting with Lanny, so I did that, and I got a text message back. Once the date and address was set, I went to the location. Uh, so I'm outside the house where I'm going to talk to Lanny. It's a warm autumn day, and I just peeked inside the house, and they're sitting in the house, and they're sitting there with their hands, palms up on their laps, and their eyes closed. So I'm going to wait a bit and then knock. I'm going to turn off the recorder until I get a chance to talk to Lanny in person about using it. I've only had a chance to text with Naomi so far. I turn off the recorder here because... Up until that point, I hadn't had a chance to tell Lanny what I wanted to do. And then after I met her, I felt like I didn't really want to turn the recorder on if my plan was just to discredit her. She wasn't directly involved in this. This was just a whim of mine to try and contact Brother 12. And she seemed nice enough. She didn't seem to pull any tricks that you would normally look for in someone claiming to be a psychic. You know, there's someone trying to contact you whose name starts with a B or no, a P. Oh, yeah, yeah, P. You know, that kind of thing. She just asked me what I wanted to do and why. And then she was enthused and said it was the kind of thing that she was interested in. And she looked like she was somebody's mom. 
She was dressed in jeans and a gray sweatshirt. She drove an SUV and said she was going home to feed her dogs after our session. We did a little bit of energy cleansing to start, which I didn't expect, but was fine. And then she told me she was going to try to contact them. And she wasn't really clear on who them or they were. I don't think she really knew, but she said they were always there and helped her reach the people that she was trying to reach. The spirits she was trying to reach. So I told her we were looking for one or two entities. Edward Arthur Wilson, the human man, and uh, his master, Brother Twelve. She said that Brother Twelve came right away and was a huge entity. But she had to go farther for Edward Arthur Wilson. So I had to say his name, and then eventually he came. And then I got to ask questions. Just basic stuff about the colony. Honestly, I had some questions prepared, but at that point I kind of forgot them. It all just seemed so weird that it was happening. I mean, I didn't even really believe it while it was happening, but there's an aspect of something like that where you have to suspend your disbelief if you want to participate, so it becomes real in some way. I did ask what happened to him in 1928 that changed the way he ran the colony and made him more brutal in his approach to his followers, and she listed off his responses just saying words like, didn't understand, mistrust, um, broken, things like that. And I asked where the gold was, but he didn't give me GPS coordinates, so I didn't push it. I did ask if anyone was currently channeling Brother 12, and the answer was no. I thought about offering myself up as a vessel for Brother 12, because a cult leader does seem slightly lucrative, but I didn't. Because at the time, I felt like I was being crushed by an invisible sphere. We were sitting together in the sunny room facing each other, Lanny with her hands palm up on her lap as she relayed messages to me from Brother 12, and I was sitting across from her with my eyes closed mostly. And then I just felt this knot in my stomach and like I was being crushed, and it kind of freaked me out, so I told her about it, and she said that she would get them to ease their energy up. I felt a little bit better, but I still felt kind of sick, so we ended the session. But she said that Brother 12 told me he would talk to me again. She also said that nobody had ever tried to talk to him before, which raises my suspicions because John Oliphant certainly did. And I think that his followers probably would have too because it's kind of the th stuff they were into. He got them to perform psychic attacks on their enemies. So I think that trying to contact him from beyond the grave was not outside the realm of possibility. Anyways, like I said, participating in something like this in any kind of real way, involves dropping your defenses and believing almost. At the end of the session, Lanny told me she knew I was really skeptical about what happened, but to keep an open mind, which I kind of did. It was a bizarre experience, and I can't account for it. Except to say that the mind is a very powerful thing. So after it was over, I went back home. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, what was that? Do I believe I spoke to Brother 12? No, not really. Why did I have a physical reaction? Hypnosis? Maybe? Overactive imagination? Definitely. I feel really strange, but that could be, but that could be because I was really tense throughout and have just now relaxed. I'm going to walk home. Like, 
I am a gross skeptic of the occult. I don't even believe you were crushed when right. you felt yeah, crushed. Yeah. I yeah, think yeah. you were invested in the story and went through something, certainly. I don't buy that thing. But even if, like, if you just approach the most skeptical approach to this kind of thing ever, and you can't deny that there's something inexplainable about the entire story. It was national media. It, he was a propertyed man. There were court cases against him. It wasn't like it was totally undocumented. It's undeniable that he was able to create this colony that brought wealthy people to it, that spent time there, that bought into a concept that he was selling. And that couldn't have just been money. It couldn't have just been exploitation. It couldn't have been, because there would have been a chink in the armor. It doesn't sound like anybody came out and called him a fraud in any of the proceedings. Nobody, his own biographer, these guys don't call him a fraud. They leave the door open, mm -hmm. but no one sort of like shuts the door on that. And to me, that is the kind of crazy thing, because we know that Charles Manson was crazy. You know, we sort of get to the root of it, but we weren't able to do it here. Or did you get a chance to ask Brother 12 your questions, or was it more just talking yeah. about Madame Z? Yeah, yeah, well, he said actually he's, um, he said that he uh, regrets his actions, and then he's preparing to come back. He's preparing to come back and pay the karmic price for those actions and do the equivalent amount of good that he did bad in that other lifetime. And, and his final message was that people should know there is no death. That there's a continuity of consciousness that we live many lifetimes. Thanks for listening. This has been an episode of Sleepy City. Thanks to Rhonda Lillard for permission to use the Cecil Clark tape. Thanks to Sean McPherson for helping me retrieve the tape. Thank you to Alyssa Rennick for transcribing interviews. Visit sleepycitypodcast.com to see photos of Cedar by the Sea, a photo of the letter I reference, links to more information about Brother 12, and links to all the music in the piece. Sleepy City is produced at CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. It's recorded, produced, and edited by me, Liz MacArthur. It's that simple. Now, don't you want to become a cult leader? Don't you want devoted followers who leave their families for you? give their money to you, give their bodies to you, give up their lives for you, and will kill for you. I will do what you say for the cause. I will leave my family for the cause. I will give you my money for the cause. I will give you my body for the cause. I will die for the cause. I will kill for the cause. I love you 